Good evening, this is Chrononauts, a science fiction literature history podcast. I'm Nate, and I'm joined by my co-hosts, J.M. and Gretchen, and this month we are going over time travel stories. If you are interested in this theme and would like to listen to more, you can check out our previous two episodes on Octavia Butler's Kindred, Mark Twain's A Connecticut Yankee in King Arthur's Court, or perhaps more relevant to this particular story, the first segment of tonight's episode, El Sprague de Camp's Less Darkness Fall, of which this story we're covering, Paul Anderson's The Man Who Came Early, is pretty much a direct response to. So, despite the fact that we are a science fiction literature history podcast, a lot of our authors, perhaps until pretty recently on the podcast anyways, that we've covered, haven't really been career science fiction writers. We talked about Jack Williamson a few episodes ago when we did an episode on Amazing Stories, and our author tonight has a somewhat similar story in that he was a lifelong science fiction author whose career spanned more than 50 years. As such, there is probably less to say about science fiction authors who wrote science fiction, as there is about outsiders who approached the genre from some other outside angle, or perhaps shifted to different things in their career like in H.G. Wells. But before we get started on tonight's story, we'll say a little bit about Paul Anderson, who was born on November 25th, 1926, in Bristol, Pennsylvania. For a science fiction author who wrote science fiction stories, 1926, also the birth of Amazing Stories, is a pretty good year to be born in. Yeah. And the family, shortly after, moved to Port Arthur, Texas. His father died in a car crash when he was 11 years old. And after that, his mother moved the family around a whole bunch to Denmark, Maryland, then Minnesota, where Paul spent all his money on science fiction magazines. He was involved in the Minneapolis Fantasy Society and met his wife, Karen Cruz, at the 1952 World Science Fiction Convention. The couple moved to San Francisco and was involved in the science fiction community for the entirety of his life. He was the president of the Science Fiction and Fantasy Writers of America, and among other accolades, won three Nebula and seven Hugo Awards, a Locus Award, and even has an asteroid named after him, 7758 Paul Anderson. So I think this this is definitely our most celebrated modern sci-fi author today. I think so far, yeah. I mean, Butler has gotten a fair amount of acclaim, but only, I think, recently in the last like, 15, 20 years or so. Whereas Anderson seems to be very celebrated throughout much of his life. And he also wrote a huge volume of work from yeah. his first story to appear in Astounding, which was Tomorrow's Children, written with an FN Waldrop for the March 1947 issue, when he was still in college, to his death on July 31st, 2001. And by huge volume, it really is a huge volume. I think there's over 100 novels countless short stories which appear over dozens of collections, and there's probably more to say about the man's work than the man himself. And there's certainly a lot of it. This is my first time with him. Have either of you read his works before? I read a little bit. I read, I'm trying to remember, I read quite a number of short stories, and I think I've read, uh, yes, I've read the novel Tao Zero, which was really good. And it's kind of a hard science fiction. It reminded me a little bit of Arthur C. Clarke, but it has a different feeling to it. And I also read his fantasy novel, The Broken Sword, which is inspired by 
some of the Icelandic sagas, and yeah. it felt it, I felt definitely like he was at home in this time frame because he did write a lot of fantasy books as well, and some of them definitely hearken to that. And not all of them, though. He's he's despite being a, a science fiction writer in the science fiction community, he does have quite a diversity of themes and concepts in both fantasy and science fiction, and I believe a couple of nonfiction works as well. He wrote something on nuclear power or, or nuclear weapons or something like that. I can't, I can't remember now. I didn't write it down, but I came across it at some point. Yeah, there was a reference in the New York Times obituary. I don't know if they misquoted him or what, where they attributed something to him saying that he preferred not to think of himself as a science fiction author, but a magic realism author. So I, huh. I, I thought that was kind of interesting. Yeah, I don't know. That's... I mean, maybe he dabbled in that, but I don't. I don't think. I think he was very proud to wear the mantle of science yeah. fiction. So, yeah. So I don't know yeah. if they misquoted him or, or what. Doesn't, doesn't really seem to make sense. I don't think. Maybe they took him out of context somehow. Yeah. When he said that, maybe he was referring to a specific work. <laughs> Who knows? Right. But. Have you read anything by him before, Gretchen? I have not read anything by him. I've come across his name quite a few times, but this is my first time actually reading one of his works. Yeah, I certainly like this one, and since he's got a lot of it, I certainly wouldn't mind covering him more in the future. Yeah, I would be open to reading more of him. Yeah, yeah, but this was definitely a good one. So, I had a funny experience with Poole Anderson, and I remember, actually, you know, we've talked a little bit already about, like, being put off by some author's tendencies and stuff like that, and I, at one point, just decided... And this has kind of changed for the podcast out of necessity. But I at some point just decided that I wasn't going to read authors' introductions. And I wasn't going to read authors' forewords or autobiographies of writers and stuff. And that I just wanted their work to be their work. And I didn't want to necessarily know what they thought about politics and stuff like that. Actually, Poole Anderson was one of the people that made me make that decision. And that was because I read something that he wrote once. And it was an introduction to something or other where he was talking about spaceflight. And he said, he basically was saying that he was so obsessed with the idea of spaceflight. And this has been noted by a few people who wrote about him, that he was so obsessed with the idea of space exploration and how important it was to the future and how important it was to science and how important it was to the human race and how it was absolutely necessary that we spend every available resource that we have at our disposal to get off into space that I think that it perhaps blindsided him to some other things. And he, I guess this was very topical at the time. This was like maybe the mid seventies or something like that. And he basically spent a lot of time deriding people who thought that there were more important causes, like, you know, maybe fixing some of the problems that we have here and now for everyday people rather than like spending all this money on space travel and, I get that. A lot of people thought that way at the time. And certainly as a kid, I was like, yeah, all the billions of dollars you can throw at it, right? Let's do it. And I still would, I mean, I dream about it. You know, I would, I would like us to explore space, but I also think that there's only so much resource to go around, right? Yeah. So, I mean, people are in a really messed up state in this world right now and here and now, and they're never going to get into space and it is worthwhile to care about them. And and I think later on, reading a bit more about him and actually like reading more of his fiction, because I wasn't put off to the point where I didn't want to read his books anymore or anything, but I kind of understood that he was a pretty nuanced person and that he has a lot of 
cool things and that like he has a lot of interests and they they also show through in a lot of his work but he was one of those really gung-ho guys and he wanted this to be the real aim of advancement and moving forward and if people need to be sacrificed so that we can get off into space so be it was kind of his attitude i thought at the time and Maybe I was being a little bit judgmental, but or maybe it was just a sensitive place I was at that time where I was just kind of like, eh, I don't know, I don't and it like <laughs> it's like, all right, I don't need to read this. Just get on with the story. Right. And that's yeah, kind of yeah. and I started thinking that this was around the time that I started thinking this kind of same thing about some of the music that I was listening to, where I was like starting to read interviews from musicians that I, I liked their music. And then I was just kind of like, oh. Uh, yeah, uh, right. <laughs> like, I think I don't need to get that close to these people. Right. And now that I'm a little older, I think I'm at the point where I can balance out the two, and especially doing this podcast and like reading authors' autobiographies, which is something that I said I'd never do. And it's like, yes, yeah, it's, it's kind of interesting and it's cool. And sometimes you learn things that aren't altogether nice, but sometimes you also get surprised the other way, and you're like, yeah, okay, cool. It's fun. It's good. And I don't mind. I get it. I think that a lot of people had that dream. And I'm not surprised that Anderson did because, like, it figures into so much of his work, too. Yes, he was a fantasy writer. And yes, he wrote stories like this. But space opera and space exploration and a myriad of worlds was kind of one of his things, for sure. Like, more so than DeCamp, definitely. Mm. Well, with this one, we didn't really get to any of that. No. This one was really good, though. Yeah. The Man Who Came Early. So this one was first published in the June 1956 issue of the magazine of fantasy and science fiction, but was reprinted several times afterwards. And I believe this is the first time we've done something from that magazine, and we won't get too much into their history here, but they're one of the premier science fiction magazines of the 1950s who published all kinds of big names. So Anthony Boucher was the editor, right? And this was kind of considered by many to be a follow-up to Unknown. And it lasted a lot longer. Yeah. Like right up till the 90s at least. Yeah. So a major magazine at the time. I'm sure we're going to be seeing it a lot more as we go into the golden age in the upcoming episodes when we get there. Yeah. I really like this one a lot too. I think this is very short. So it's probably best to talk about more of it after we're done summarizing it. But I really enjoyed... The whole vibe of it, the whole, like, there's been such a a nice connection between all the works we've been doing lately. And this one, even though it's by far the shortest, it kind of feels in a way like a good way to end it. Because Anderson is taking what Twain and the Cap did, but he's, like, condensing it to this very fine point where it's like, yeah, it doesn't need any extra baggage. I'm just going to tell this fun short story of, what I think might actually happen if somebody was in this situation, sure. it would probably happen very quickly. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and I think also the way that we have structured how we've covered these stories, this feels like a turning point to how the concept of time travel seems a little more optimistic in the last story, yeah. you know, and then we get this and the next story we'll cover vintage season. There's this continual move towards ambivalence towards the actual traveler that's the person showing up into these people's lives and you get to see more with anderson's work and later moore's where they focus a lot more on the people that are being affected 
by the person that has just arrived in their time. And yeah. that kind of circles back to Kindred, where yeah. we kind of started this whole cycle with it's kind of interesting how it flows in a nonlinear fashion like a good time travel <laughs> journey really would. Yes. Yeah. And it's interesting that here, Poole Anderson chooses somebody who's like the model citizen of the current military industrial complex that just has him fail miserably to accomplish anything of value. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah i feel like this is the much more realistic way that at it least is. i would <laughs> would <Yeah>. um <laughs> feel like if i were suddenly yeah transported yeah. a thousand years ago like uh, yeah of course i'm not gonna know how to do anything and it really <laughs> does get to i love the line that you don't have the tools to make the tools to make the tools right. which yeah yeah <laughs> is such a different mindset than what Twain had and even what DeCamp had. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I think pretty much all the literary criticism surrounding it that I read anyway said it's more or less a direct refutation of Less Darkness Fall. Mm-hmm. And that is the idea mm-hmm. that a sophisticated future guy would just waltz into the past, outwit all these ignorant peons, and establish him as <laughs> king or a major yeah. player in a few months. And yeah. in a way, I think DeCamp is like way more guilty of this kind of romantic mm-hmm. engagement with history as a power fantasy than Twain was because Twain's point in writing Connecticut Yankee wasn't really like the serious engagement with the history. In fact, it was like deliberately playing with myth and anachronisms. That is the whole like King Arthur mess. And he's Mm -hmm. clearly doing that deliberately, but I think he's really trying to refute this idea that DeCamp would portray this as like a realistic way of going about a time travel voyage of being able to, establish yourself and bring yourself into a position of like major political power within a very short amount of time. I guess so. I mean, I think it's all a matter of degrees, really. I mean, you could say that on the level of realism, actually, this is something that Tom Shippey does in his science fiction in a view of history essay. He puts them on a kind of axis, uh, different levels where like he talks about, he doesn't mention the Anderson, but he talks about the Decamp, the Twain, and a couple of other works, one by William Golding. But yeah, he, he kind of puts it on an axis of how they tend to treat the situation. And, mm-hmm. and I, okay, when you put it that way, Decamp isn't that realistic. And it doesn't matter that he's more realistic than Twain because Twain is not taking the history seriously anyway, mm-hmm. right? So maybe the fact that, yeah, okay, Decamp being a little more realistic than Twain doesn't necessarily count in his favor. I mean, I think it kind of does. Like, not to say that it's better than Twain, because I agree, but I I think it does count in his favor that he tackled the problem, and he did it in a long-form way that where he really tried to work out some of the issues. But Anderson is definitely more very to the point about everything. Yeah. He's, he's, <laughs> I like this that the situation is told from the other side too. Yes. Like that's definitely yeah. something that's missing in both Twain and yeah. DeCamp. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I think even of course there's the way that it's interpreted. Obviously, there were people who thought that Twain was merely criticizing the English people that he came across. Yeah. When there is the critique also of American industrialization and capitalism and everything, but it can be read as Sir Boss is, does consider the people he's around as like animals and like primitive savages and it's so it's nice to see like here is that 
point of view of like someone that probably would be considered the savage and he's like this traveler guy is kind of you know i i think he's pretty annoying and i don't yeah. like him being around <laughs> yeah and this it the story does a thing that i really like too and that it, it really is just a guy telling a story like yeah. it doesn't feel like it's written you know it feels like I'm sitting here just listening to this guy talk. Yeah. It's a one side of a conversation, but from his responses, you can kind of tell what the priest is saying, you know? Yeah. It also is a bit funny. Like, it, it yeah. also has the humor a little bit that yeah. the other stories recently yeah. that we did have. I like the little asides, and I, I like the one especially when he refers to someone uh, as glassy-eyed, and he's like, yes, I know what glasses I've traveled, you know? It's like, <laughs> yeah, I've been so around know. a little bit. I'm not ignorant. <laughs> Here, pass me another beer. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So I thought, yeah, the narrative voice was really fun. The way that this story was told was definitely, definitely engaging. And it was perfect for the length, too. Like, it feels like a very well-managed short story, I think, in terms of just the way it's constructed and told. Nothing is wasted, but it's still really fun. He still makes a lot of fun asides, like the one you just mentioned, Gretchen, where it's like, Okay, you know, you're dealing with somebody who's like, yeah, he's this badass old Viking who's been through a lot of slaughter, but he's pretty cool and he's pretty smart and he's not that easy to outwit. And the fact that it's a conversation with a priest, too, is interesting and also ties it into the book we just did, where yeah. we didn't mention it that much, but religion plays a, a serious part in no, it certainly does, yeah. the story. Like, it's always coming up. It's always like... <laughs> Padway always has to think about whatever religion the person that he's talking to is so he can yeah. figure out how to say the right thing, right? Yeah. Witnessing a barroom brawl over religion at one point. Yeah, right. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but do you guys have anything else on the non-spoiler stuff before we get into the actual story? No, let's get into it. It's really short, so we'll okay. just we'll, yeah. we've already, I don't know, like, we'll talk about it a bit more when we're done. Yeah, but, yeah. okay. So our story opens up with our narrator, Ospak, and I'm going to be butchering these Icelandic names, so again, <laughs> apologize as always. But he's in a dialogue with a priest who has apparently come up to Iceland to do some missionary work. There are some obvious cultural differences between the pagans and the Christian, but Ospak assures the priest that the world will indeed not end in two years, as the priest thinks. Of this, he is quite certain. He also knows that Christianity will eventually triumph over Thor, and that it would make sense for Ospak to join the winning side. Yeah. It isn't visions that he's had, but rather the words of somebody who arrived five years ago, that no one seems to have believed but him, as no one lying could have wreaked so much harm. Interesting viewpoint. 
Now, Ospak has gotten drunk enough where he'll tell the tale to the priest. And five years ago, Ospak and his wife, Ronhild, lived with their youngest son, Helgi, and their daughter, Thorguna, as well as ten hired hands to help around the house. They're about five miles outside of Reykjavik, and there had been a storm the night before. Since wood is scarce in Iceland, he goes off with Helgi to collect some driftwood. As they're rooting through the foragings, Helgi shouts and points with his axe at something. And it's somebody dressed quite strangely, with an incredible-looking helmet. There's no nose guard on it. It's cast in one piece, and he's speaking a totally unknown tongue that sounds like dogs barking. His clothing bears the Roman letters MP, and he can speak the Norse tongue, but with a very thick accent and with several foreign words that Ospak just does not understand. He's speaking of a city where Reykjavik is and asking about the Vikings. And Sigurd, one of the hands on hand, thinks that he's mad and starts to run away for he's fearing that he's cursed somehow. Ospak stops him and the stranger keeps mentioning the H-bomb and if the war has started. Yeah. H-bomb. Yeah, what's that? (laughs) He says that he's Sergeant Gerald Roberts of the United States Army base on Iceland and was in Reykjavik and got struck by lightning or something. And after stammering through the political events and geography, he asked them when it is. And they say it's the second year after the Great Salmon Catch, which is not particularly helpful, but they're not able to express it in Christian terms. But they think it's roughly about a thousand years since Christ was crucified. And this makes Gerald recoil in horror. They take Gerald Samson, for Sam was his father's name, back to the hall. As the patronymic is still used in Iceland to this very day, actually. There at the hall, he meets eyes with Thorguna, the daughter. And Gerald is a bit taken back by the beer, which is quite sour. He asked him if they've heard of Leif Erikson, but nobody has. But they have heard something of Eric the Red, who had recently settled with other people in Greenland. Gerald pulls out a cigarette and starts a smoke, which surprises them, but doesn't startle them. And he then tells them what he think has happened. Yeah, I had out-of-the-void flashbacks there. Yeah. <laughs> it seems to be a common thing of people being rather afraid of the cigarettes. Yeah. Thinking of Twain. Yeah, right. Yeah, that was in Twain, too. Yeah. 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 <laughs> yeah. But Gerald says that he was outside in the storm and was struck by lightning and sent back to the past, and that he was born in 1932 and in a land far to the west that anybody has yet to hear of. They think he's mad, and he expresses surprise that they have a lot of fleas. They must think it's a sign that he's sick that the bugs are avoiding him in wherever he's from. Over the next few days, he gets a grip on where he is, and he says he can make himself useful around the farm, and tells Ospak that he still maintains that he's from the future and can prove it. He learned modern Icelandic, and fortunately the language hasn't changed much in a thousand years, so they're still mutually intelligible. They are going to sacrifice a horse tonight, and Gerald will show them how to use the strange metal club that he has, to efficiently kill it, rather than clubbing it with a hammer and slitting its throat. His pockets contain all kinds of strange things. Coins of remarkable roundness and sharpness. A small key. A stick with lead in it for writing. 
a flat purse holding many bits of marked paper. He solemnly tells Ospak and his family that this paper was money, much to the disbelief of everybody there. In response to the fineness of his clothing and that he must be rich, Gerald says that their king gives everybody the same set of clothes. The Icelanders in Iceland are there to escape the kings, and they want no part in any kind of aristocracy. When they go out to the shrine, Gerald mutters to Thorguna that the carving is clumsy, which offends Ospak, but they soon lead the horse to the altar. Gerald takes his gun and just shoots the horse in the head. The demonstration is quite impressive, but Ospak feels like this is very wasteful because the brains are now unusable. Plus, it isn't very practical in battle given how scarce iron is. He's telling Thorguna various tall tales from his own time of cities like New Jorvik, with eight or 9,000 people in them, which just seem incredibly far-fetched to anybody who would have any kind of sense here. Gerald is useless at cow herding, but perhaps he can be of use metalworking in a smith. The stories he tells about the United States are quite amusing. The Icelanders are having trouble understanding the concept of conscription, as well as understanding Gerald's avulsion to blood feuds. However, at ironsmithing, he is totally worthless with these medieval tools and ruins several spearheads. He can't herd goats, he can't spin, and doesn't seem to be even grossly insulted when asked to do women's work. It seems the only thing he can do is fight, which even the Icelanders have trouble believing, thinking he's played everybody for a fool up to this point. However, fight he can actually do, as he easily tosses around this one guy, Kettle Hjarmelsen, who has taken a rather dislike to how Thorguna is sticking close to Gerald. Gerald mentions something about making a cannon, but quickly realizes that casting it would be impossible. There's not enough material, and as Gretchen said earlier, there's not the ability to make the tools required to make the tools required. Yeah, that dream gets broken very, very quickly. Yeah. That's for sure. <laughs> <laughs> it's such a contrast to like that so i mean despite what we were saying about twain earlier it does seem like not many people actually understood what he was getting at and no. so you get things like that will rogers adaptation from the 30s where they storm morgana's castle to rescue king arthur and the boss with machine guns and all this stuff yeah. and that's how it ends you know and it's just no, I mean, it yeah. would just sound totally <laughs> ridiculous to anybody from that time period. And yeah. Yeah. It, yeah. So Ospak sends Gerald and Helgi out on a party to an ice fjord in a boat. And Thorguna asks to go along. And they initially reject this, but Gerald says that there should be no superstition in letting a woman go with him. And Gerald tries to explain an improved rudder design and sail system, which might not be practical. And the Icelanders think he's greatly funny, but Thorguna keeps sticking up for him and thinks that his ideas are interesting. Ospak doesn't like how Thorguna takes to Gerald, as he's pretty useless, but still can't help not but like them. Gerald sings a modern song in Old Norse, which Thorguna likes, and Kettle makes some jest and insults Gerald, and Gerald tells him to settle it outside. And Gerald thinks by this he means fist, but Icelanders do it with weapons. So Gerald takes the axe, and Kettle takes the sword. And it turns out Gerald can't fight with an axe. And he's wounded a great deal, and 
Kettle looks like he's going to kill him, but at the very last second, Gerald just pulls out his gun and shoots him to save his life, which horrifies all the onlookers. This clearly isn't honorable combat and some kind of magician's trick, and Kettle's family wants vengeance. Ospak, in the end, decides not to take Gerald in to keep the peace between the two families and tells Gerald that he's on his own now. Gerald tries to clandestinely get passage off of Iceland, but since he fails to notify the Garth of a manslaying, and as is the law before the judgment of the thing, he is considered an outlaw and fair game. I guess the people need to rule on the fact of whether this slaying was just or not, and before they do so, which will be several months, he can't leave. But he has no way of knowing this, so he inadvertently breaks their customs. So now it's fair game. Kettle's family hunt him down, and while Gerald shoots a few of them, his ammunition soon runs out. He defends himself valiantly with sword, but is ultimately slain. His body with his possession are burned for fear of him being a warlock. And the story closes with Ospak telling the priest that he did indeed believe that Samson was from a different time. And it ends with some musings on if these warriors of the future will ever wonder about the warriors of the past. And the way he says it is pretty interesting, too, because he talks a lot about how Gerald was always saying that he's from a free country and stuff. Yeah. And he's like, but were they really free? They could say whatever they wanted, but they couldn't do whatever they wanted, and they couldn't own the kind of land that I have. And maybe the people in the future will look back on the grave of somebody like this, buried now, and think... What freedom these people in the past had. (laughs) Yeah, no, it's very interesting how it portrays a difference in cultures in a way that I think that, well, I guess Butler does get into it a bit, but certainly Twain and DeCamp don't really get into that much at all of what it means to be from a place like America and what it means to be from a place like Viking Age Iceland. You're just going to have a totally different outlook on life and what it means to exist and live. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, you get to see that because, again, this is from, like, the other perspective. Yeah, you know, totally. Where, yeah. Like, the other two, you know, you don't get a chance to hear the actual voices of the people living in that time. Right, and that was something I jokingly lamented about with Twain. I mean, I didn't really mind because their boss was just usually so much fun, even when he was being a dick. <laughs> but I jokingly lamented that, like, we didn't get Clarence's perspective, and that, you know, it'd be nice to hear what somebody else thought about right. all this, yeah. right? Yeah. And in the decap is just too interested in being kind of quirky and funny that he doesn't really like. He makes his characters fun, but it's different. <laughs> but I was gonna say I haven't read this, but in the hard reading essay in Science Fiction in View of History. Tom Shippey actually talks about another DeCamp story called Aristotle and the Gun, which I think I mentioned in my uh, bio a little bit. Mm -hmm. But this is another time travel story about somebody going into the past, and this time with a time machine that he has. And he goes into the past to, I think he's, well, he meets Aristotle, basically, and he he wants to do some changes. And something happens, and he has to defend himself. And he defends himself with a gun. And... Later on, when he goes into the present, and this is a story that does not use the same time travel philosophy as Less Darkness Fall. So when he goes into the present, everything has changed. And now America is no longer... Something happened in Europe, and the indigenous peoples are the main societies in America. 
And he finds a library at some point and he figures out, of course, that he made the change and Aristotle wrote this thing denouncing science because he was trying to like show him all this new cool stuff and he ended up doing something stupid and so in the end all his philosophies were repudiated right and i can't remember what year it was published but it's, it's sometime in the 50s as well so it's probably somewhat contemporaneous with this story as well so i don't know if anderson necessarily read it but if he was definitely aware of less darkness falls which i didn't know but doesn't surprise me they were certainly aware of each other as writers so I didn't actually check to see if DeCamp had any anecdotes about Anderson, but he might, given that he's DeCamp. Yeah, <laughs> but that's right. Just kind of interesting that DeCamp did look at this from a slightly different angle as well, this kind of situation. And yeah, but I think what's interesting about these four stories, the Anderson, the DeCamp, the Twain, and the Butler... The first two we looked at, they were using the historical time travel vehicle as a way to comment on the present. Yes. Whereas DeCamp and Anderson seem to be more focused on actually engaging with the historical society at the time. Now, yeah. of course, Anderson and DeCamp do it in completely opposite ways, but regardless, neither of them really try to make a point about the present that much. I mean, we do have some discussions of you know what it means to be free. No. There's some political one, commentary it, in this one, yeah, yeah, but it's not that much. I mean, it's yeah. a short story anyway, so right. it just, I think it's there, and it's it's gone into as much as it needs to be gone into, or you just kind of think, yeah, maybe he has a point, and like, that's it, right? Yeah, yeah. But it's definitely still there, but yeah, I think that's definitely a difference between a lot of the older proto-science fictional works, and the more modern style is that Often just engaging with a historical time period or alien culture even or something like that, like for its own sake, was not really part of the agenda of some of these other older writers. Not to count Butler in among those. And, and of course, like, there's still every perfectly good reason to write the other kind of science fiction story now, right? And just because we have a more modern style doesn't mean that you can't use it as an allegory or something sure. like that or use it to tell a story about something else right like you're yeah you're putting a character into the past or into another planet or whatever but almost that's not really the point right like of something like yankee it's arguable although sir boss is a fun character and it's nice to see him and sandy and clarence and all that like almost they don't feel like real people you know what i mean because yeah. because he is making a point and that's that's really on his mind and and I think that that is one of the prerogatives of science fiction is that it actually wants to engage with this stuff. And, and it does, I guess, bear that in common with historical fiction. And that's something that I think both Anderson and Decap were interested in is just straight historical, historical fiction. And some of a lot of Anderson's fantasies, like they have a lot of magic in them and stuff, but some of them read pretty straight except for a few things and maybe that's why like the whole magical realism thing might have come up yeah. at some point i still doubt that he said what he said exactly in that quote because i do think he was i, I do think he was happy being a science fiction writer and, and he was proud of that tradition but i can see it coming up and i do think there is more to anderson than than some of these writers who maybe I guess didn't really I mean even even somebody like Asimov though like he was so prolific right like he wrote things in a million different nonfiction genres 
like science and history books, literary criticism, not just a science fiction writer in in a lot of ways, right? Also wrote a lot of mysteries, so... And some of these writers, they were quite diverse. Like, the whole idea of unknown, too, is to try and diversify the output of some of this stable, because... And we'll be getting into John Campbell a little more later on in another episode, I'm sure. We'll be talking about him more. I mean, he's come. his name has already come up a lot, and it came up a bit today. And we're kind of pointing in the direction, right now anyway, I am, of... of definitely not liking him very much as a person but finding that he was actually a really good editor and a lot of the people that worked with him said that he pretty much helped establish them as a writer and even though like somebody like Isaac Asimov had a lot of problems with Campbell's views and ideas he kind of stuck to him out of this sense of loyalty or whatever and some were willing to do that and some less so as time went on. Campbell got crazier and crazier. But here we are. The magazine field is really diversifying too. And you're seeing a lot of different viewpoints. And like, I don't know if like, for example, the kind of political commentary that is present in this story would be something that Campbell would welcome. Like, I, I do feel it's a little bit considering the time period and everything. But apparently, Anderson was, was pretty gung-ho about like, I guess, American military efforts as well. So that comes through from time to time. But I do think the showing of the different cultures, like you said, Nate, and, and how they fail to interact, perhaps, in certain key ways, is something that, again, science fiction can do really well. And yep. that Anderson is more than willing to engage with in this case. So yeah, this is a really good, really good story. It's definitely one of the shorter Anderson stories that I've read. And I just read it very quickly. It was a really fun read. I do think that it's a really nice way to cap off this particular batch of stories. But, I mean, there is a lot more that we could go into. And that's always the funny thing when we do these episodes now that are sort of based on a theme. And I find myself kind of drifting a bit into, oh, but what about this? What about this? What about this? All this other stuff that we can include. And obviously, a lot of these things are themes that we will revisit at some point in the future and we will we're just because we've covered something doesn't mean we've covered everything about it and we're certainly more than willing to return to things we'll be doing a lot of random short story episodes and things like that in the future and we'll be revisiting perhaps if not the works from the past that we've done but revisiting things that would logically i guess go alongside them that we might not have thought of at the time or that we didn't have time for at the time or that we wanted to move to a more modern example which i'm sure we will be doing a lot more of as times move forward this story from 1956 i should say certainly places it that would be the second second most recent story that we've done then after I think so. yeah i think so yeah so so there's our first 50 story guys so cool i really like this too and i can't think of a better way to finish off this batch of stories the best way to to get this story is just to read it it's good it's fun and i think its points are pretty solid and although that did not shut the book on the random accidental modern day traveler into the past subgenre i think it's going to close our particular moment with this part of science fiction literature history and now if you guys have nothing further to add, then I think it's time 
to finish up with a very different kind of story that involves time travel into the past. And you can view this one as a sort of vacation, if you want. <laughs>